heard a story like that one before. <laughs> yeah, I love risk, actually. I love calculated risk. The best thing I've ever done in my entire life is low-level fast jet flying through valleys. You can't change life, but you can change your response to it. If we can change how we respond to things and how do we do that? How do you change how you respond to things? It's exposure, isn't it? It's about recognising that we have got an innate, innate personality and we're going to have therefore innate behaviours, but we can change our behaviours. Our behaviours don't have to be set in stone. What can you focus on and let the rest of it go? And because ultimately we, we could have just sort of said, well, that, that's not our job. But actually you realise that sometimes there's a bigger picture and that you've got to step up. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to PrettyLitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. My guest today is former RAF pilot Mandy Hickson. Yes, that's right. A female fast jet pilot who is also a published author, TEDx speaker and motivational and keynote speaker. Mandy was born in Manchester and studied geography and sports science at Birmingham University before joining, joining the Royal Air Force to become a Tornado GR4 pilot. She was the first woman to fly this plane and she completed three tours of duty and 45 combat missions. When we discussed her appearing on the podcast, she was emailing me from Mount Everest and understanding she might be busy and potentially a little bit distracted, I said there was absolutely no rush for her to reply. But I very swiftly received a response saying, I'm back at sea level and readjusting to the temperature. I look forward to chatting soon. Considering the starting point for every conversation on this podcast is to ask my guests what their relationship is like with risk. I have been champing at the bit to speak to Mandy because hers is a perspective I simply have not heard before. As I'm sure many of you have already done, the second I think fighter pilot, I think Top Gun. I vividly remember watching the original film back in the 80s and thinking how cool it would be to do what Maverick did on the daily. In real life, though, I've only just overcome crying on takeoff, so it was not my destiny. Mandy has written a book, An Officer, Not a Gentleman, and has parlayed her experiences in the RAF to the business world, coaching on everything from strategy to nurturing a great team and how to foster confidence in the workplace. I am delighted to welcome her onto the Emma Gunn Show and hear her life lessons. So without any further ado, welcome to the show, Mandy Hickson, or should I say, Big Bird? Oh, yeah, there you go. It's always a disappointment, that, isn't it? Can you imagine it? You're hoping to be a nice maiden and you get the course I'm Big Bird. But there we go. <laughs> well, it's just that I'm, I love the Top Gun films. They're, they're in my top five. And it's just every time they, like in the most recent one in Top Gun Maverick, they're like, call sign, Viper, call yeah. sign. And it's just so hangman. And they're so kind of uh, macho. And then I know, I know. In fact, you'll like this one. Let me, shall I just grab this? Because... Yes. Here you go. I actually got sent a Barbie. <gasps> Phoenix. Phoenix. Yes. 
So it obviously I just couldn't resist, you know, I was like, it's going to stay in the box. But yeah. <laughs> well, actually, that was something that I was going to nerd out about you. And then I thought, keep on, keep on message, Emma, we're creating a podcast here. But I thought they actually did a really brilliant job in the second film in Top Gun Maverick of having a female pilot and it not being a thing. I know. I, I thought they did that really subtly, actually, that mm. she was just part of the team, but it didn't over-dramatise that aspect of it. Yeah. You know, and they had the guy with the glasses. They had a few different, you know, sort of different people, different personality types in there as well, which I thought was really good. And actually, I, I probably enjoyed the second one probably more than I enjoyed the first one. I mean, the first was so iconic mm. and it blew me away. But it's only when you look at it with our 21st century perspective that you think, oh, it's a little bit misogynistic. And, you know, it doesn't quite translate. Whereas I thought Top Gun 2, Maverick, did. I thought they did a brilliant job. It was good. So were you influenced by Top Gun original in any way, shape yeah. or form? Yeah, no, I was actually. So, you know, it was out in, what was it, 1986, wasn't it? Yeah. I think. And, you know, so I was 13. So I was right at the stage. And that was when I joined the Air Cadets. So that's an organisation run by the RAF to really in, sort of encourage youngsters into, well, give them a little bit of an insight into what that world's like. And I joined and it, I flew, but it was very much with, the backdrop of the thought of flying, Top Gun was around, you know, but but the, but that did not that world did not exist for women. So mm. women weren't allowed to be pilots in the Air Force then. So we're seeing this world, and yes, it's exciting, and oh gosh, but you can't go into it, which is this sort of real paradox of how you feel. So yeah, to to basically set your sights on becoming a fast jet pilot, but it's an impossible dream, tricky one. Well, how on earth do you, okay, we're going to go to risk because actually I think that's that's how I open the show with everybody <laughs> other than a deep dive into what we think of the Maverick and Top Gun films. <laughs> um, so I would just, broadly speaking, how would you describe your relationship with risk? And given that being a fast jet pilot is a risky business, not to mention yeah. another top, a Tom Cruise film. Yeah. I'm, I'm a, guessing that you have an in, 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 um, a unique perspective on this. Yeah, I love risk, actually. I love calculated risk. And I think that's your difference there. So I think it, when I look at my own personal life, I take risks all the time, as in setting up my own business. I'm really happy to put myself out there. I, I probably embrace risk in jobs that I take. You know, I, at one point I was asked to go and speak to the International Atomic Energy Agency in, in Vienna, to world leaders from the nuclear power sector. And they said, could I talk about cultural change? I was like, absolutely, yes. For me, that was a huge risk because actually I was not particularly, you know, um, you know, I wasn't au fait that with that area. It would need me, me to do quite a lot of research. And it was taking a lot of our lessons from aviation and realistically just translating those into the nuclear power sector. But again, I say yes, and that is a risk because mm. in the back of my mind, I'm always thinking, oh, they might catch you out. That's that whole imposter syndrome thing. But with my flying, when you look at risk and the, the risks that you take when you're flying, actually, they're very calculated. So I would say I've never really unduly risked my aircraft, who I am. I've never put myself in a situation that is dangerous. I would never do that. So those days of flying under Spitfire Bridge and all of the that sort of side of things of, you know, gung ho Second World War pilots, that's gone. You know, you would say that actually we are very process following. You know, we 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 see risk. We'll work it out very quickly what what that risk level is. And is that is that an acceptable level to take or not? And I think we get very good at doing that. But I do love being on the edge of, I would say, danger. But I love skiing really fast. 
I love, you know, sort of sports, mountain biking. I'm the, you know, I might be slow up the hill, but I'll be the one first down the hill because I love that feeling of being on the edge, you know, and that's something that I, I really embrace. But that space does feel like a space where accidents happen. And I'm very risk averse, which is one of the reasons why I'm so intrigued to talk about it with other people. So for me, going fast down a hill on a mountain bike is, well, the potential for an accident is bigger than if you, you know, go down a gentle incline. (laughs) It is, but the fun and the thrill. I mean, I absolutely love it. That's what feeds me. So I have to be, people say, you know, have you ever driven motorbikes? No, because I know in my own mind, I would push the limits. I, I know I would, because I would love going really fast. I mean, to me, there is nothing better. If you ask me what the one thing I love doing, the best thing I've ever done in my entire life is low level fast jet flying through valleys. So, you know, you're absolutely focused on what you're doing. You've got the valley sides on either side of you. And, you know, you will literally one wrong move and you will die. You will fly into that mountain. I have colleagues, friends that have done that. And so you have the laser focus that you have to have, but the thrill that you have from doing it and the excitement from doing that, you know, it really is like that Mavericks where they're going down the valley, you know, at 100 feet beneath enemy radar. We do practice that. And that is exciting. And that is what really I love doing. But that, so that's, it sounds like there's this sort of physical energy that's really loud, like a real vibration. But so physically there's this like, this is so exciting. But mentally in your brain, it's a pinpoint and nothing else can exist. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's how I live my life, though. And I think I've given that to my children, you know. So I, I would sort of, I've got two boys. They're both 18 and 19 now. So they're massive. They're massive. They're six, <laughs> four, six. But when they were younger, we've got this big hill behind our house here. And we would go off. And I would be the one saying, yeah, roll down the hill as fast as you can on your house. You know, I'd be like, climb the highest tree. But make sure you hold on tight. I wouldn't say don't, you know, don't fall. I'd be going, yeah, safety first you make sure that you have got a really good grip, you know, so you're teaching them the the safety aspect of it and you you push yourself to until you're uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Don't put yourself in a position that, where you can't get down from it because I'm not coming up. Mm-hmm. And that was them at the age of five and six. You know, you'd always see my boys doing night manoeuvres, got war paint on their faces, like rolling around the hill. But, you know, that's what you've given them. You've given them that sort of like level of excitement, challenge of pushing yourself a little bit. And, you know, and I think that is important. So is it situations, you said calculated risk. So is it situations where you know every single aspect of it so well that you can pretty much calculate what the risk is and what potential and weigh up whether it's worth it? Yeah. So I think when you're flying, let's say take it the the flying scenario, you know, if you're flying in an area of conflict, which, you know, I have done, I've flown in Iraq, you would look at the planning stage is massive. So you're going to plan for every what if scenario. So you're going to say, okay, what happens if I lose an engine at this point near the Iranian border, for example, or what happens if we get shot at here? Or, you know, so basically you're you're giving yourself constant scenarios. And it's something that actually they do from literally the very first trip you'll ever fly. They'll, they have this emergency of the day. So you're sitting in a, in a met brief, in a, in a weather brief in the morning, and they'll say, right, emergency of the day is you have loss of directional control on the runway, Mandy, and you've got to know those drills. So basically what you're doing is you're planting that seed of things will go wrong, but we need to know what the re- recovery is. So what you're always trying to do is create a, a response, a measured response rather than an immediate reaction. 
So if you think when something happens to you, Emma, you might go, <laughs> you're going to fight, flight and freeze mode. And you get that whole amygdala hijack going on in your brain. Mm-hmm. Um, um, We've only just met, but you know me so well. <laughs> I'm just thinking about you going down that hill on a mountain bike. <laughs> Um, so basically you're in fight flight freeze everything stops and our heart rate accelerates pupils dilate and basically we won't be able to respond and it's like how quickly normally that's about 30 seconds they would say when something happens that shock startle feeling how can we in a fast jet speed up or shorten that 30 seconds to give you a a response to this thing rather than this physiological reaction Mm -hmm. and that's training that's why you do training. It's why you get thrown in emergency all the time. So I, I landed an aircraft in Canada and I ended up, it was, there's a lot of reasons for this, but it was a, it was a very, very wet runway. And we ended up um, engaging our thrust reverse and I spun through about 120 degrees and we were going partially backwards at 160 miles an hour. And rather than my navigator who's sitting behind me shouting, oh my God, you've lost control. He said, loss of directional control on the runway. It's an immediate dr- drill. So my brain will go into a, a a response. If he had said, this is horrible, it's awful, we're all going to die, then he, I wouldn't have responded. But basically, you're giving your brain a trigger. So mm. you're going to do that by, tra- by training. And if you think about, you know, how we become more averse to or risk and, we, and risk becomes more acceptable, it's when we we are exposed to it more and more commonly. And the more we get exposed to it, then the less our perception is of that risk. You know what's just making me think of, which is such a sort of a leap from uh, loss of control on a runway in a jet, in a a very expensive jet. It's just that I think I'm in my mid 40s now and I look back and think, oh, God, Emma, you were such an idiot or you overreacted to that in your 20s or that when that thing happened at work in your early 30s, that reaction that you had was you're such a ding dong. Like I can be quite hard on myself, but basically all of that life is training. And so the parallel there is that you have this intense training to be able to do something like you do. But I think we also have to understand that you can't just, I used to be so jealous of people who would hit, who looked like they were just living life perfectly, making all the right decisions at all the right times. But I don't know. I actually quite, I think there's something, and there's something beautiful in learning from the mistakes. Otherwise what's the point? Absolutely. I was um, reading a, uh, listening to a, um, a, a book an audio book uh, high performance uh which oh, i really yeah. like, a great book actually with jake humphries and damien hughes and they were talking about life l plus r equals o life plus a response equals an outcome and you can't change life but you can change your response to it mm. and that will change a different outcome and i really like that and it keeps on going back into my mind that one point of it's if we can change how we respond to things and how do we do that how do you change how you respond to things it's exposure isn't it it's about recognizing that we have got an innate innate personality and we're going to have therefore innate behaviours, but we can change our behaviours. Our behaviours don't have to be set in stone. Mm. And our behaviours are something that we need to work on if we want to basically better ourselves to improve who we are. And I think when we look back on our 20-year-old selves, we of course can go, oh my gosh, why did we do that? And we would have looked at people who looked like they were the swan, but they would have been paddling under that water for years beforehand so that they could look like they were being graceful above it. You know, mm. but we've all got to learn. And I think that's how we are learning that response to those different things. It's also making me think about where we are as a society at the moment, because there's been a real shift of sort of like, as opposed to as you say, the only thing you can adapt and change is your response to things. We're in a culture at the moment where there's a lot of, this upsets me, 
So that is going to be the thing that is a solid state. And the thing that I would like to change is how you treat me so that I don't have to. And that's to me, that feels quite bizarre. Have you noticed that? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I mean, Ricky Chavez does a very dodgy stand up on this, but he just says, so you're offended. Well, that's not really my problem. You know, I'm going to say it. Your choice to be offended is how you're choosing to respond to what I'm saying. Mm. And so I think a classic example of that, actually, which was really quite amusing, was my mother-in-law. She used to always watch uh, SAS Who Dares Wins. and But she hated the swearing. And she would write an email or a letter to Channel 4 every episode to say, I love the programme, but I don't like the swearing. Now, you're not going to change the swearing. So you either don't watch the programme or don't moan about it, but you can't mm. be offended by something that is you're actively choosing to do. Mm. And I think we are in society just saying, I'm offended. I, you know, that's, it's me that's being hard done by to this because I'm offended by it. No, you're choosing how you're going to respond to it. And I think we do, we take ourselves so seriously in so many ways at the moment. Mm. And I think it is about sometimes thinking, actually, I need to look at my own response and think, how do I, do I want to be a keyboard warrior and instantly write some horrible email or message back on social media? Or do I just want to say, well, actually, I don't really like that viewpoint. I'm therefore not going to engage in it. It, there's so many things it's a thought not a tweet is what I think when some sometimes if someone messages me or I see something on social media and I think what possessed you to actually well typing it out fair enough but actually to publish it I think that was a thought not a tweet and then I move on <laughs> yeah that's a good way of putting it actually isn't it because I did um, a podcast actually with um it was a, a large company mainly around lads and uh, basically, when I looked at a lot of the comments afterwards, a lot of them were very misogynistic comments of that's why a woman shouldn't be in the air. And actually, I contacted the company. And I said, look, I'm really sorry. You know, I've come on to your show. Actually, I'm fe- I am finding all of these comments very offensive. And actually, I noticed that a lot of them have all been taken down, which was I was pleased about because it's the classic keyboard warriors of, you know, they still exist in society, sadly. What the what what could they have a go at you for? Because you were really forty-five <clears throat> combat about, missions. Yeah, we were talking. Well, I did an, a ninety-minute interview, and fifteen minutes was what was actually published. And they focused on basically a story I was talking about how trying to have a wee in an aeroplane, which of oh, course, for goodness a sake. woman can't do that. And it was like about that. Well, that was about ten minutes of the interview, and they used the whole of that bit and only five minutes of the rest of the story. And of course, they were saying, well, that's why women shouldn't fly, because they can't have a wee in an aeroplane. That's why they're no good. You know, typical, she should be back in the kitchen. And all of these, oh, the entire diatribe of comments came out. And, you know, I was furious about it. My husband went, well, maybe you shouldn't have gone on that podcast. <laughs> um, okay, fair enough. Thank you for that. Um, <laughs> like, Tim Peake did it the week before, and he didn't get any of those get back in a kitchen comments. Mm. So I find that sort of thing I find really annoying. And actually, that's why I acted on it. Normally, I would just go, thought not to comment, you know, it should like you would do. But on this occasion, I just thought, actually, I'm not putting up with that. Mm. Do you know what? I came on your show, all good intentions. You have chosen to edit it, the 90-minute interview into 15 minutes talking about me having a wee in, the, in a war zone in an aeroplane. You know, that's what's now led to all of the comments. So you take some responsibility for that as well, which they did. Um- and what were they all doing while you were up in the air, actually participating in, <laughs> uh, I mean, it just makes it baffle. Anyway, yeah. so the thing, so when I talked to you, when I asked you what your biggest risk was, and bearing in mind that our first conversation took place when you were at Mount Everest, <laughs> I thought, yeah. I can't wait to see what the biggest risk was. And you said, leaving my teenage boys home alone <laughs> for three weeks while I went to Everest. So not Everest. <laughs> 
No, but uh, I, say, by the way, I didn't actually go up Everest itself. So I just did the walk to base camp of Everest. But that's that is in itself was um, it's an 11 day trek. But um, yeah, it was going to be the first time I had left them home alone for three weeks, which really was a huge risk because I just thought <laughs> 18 and 19. What could possibly go wrong? Well, I'm going to assume that none of your houseplants were watered. Yeah, fortunately I have very few house plants but yeah it was what was really funny was I'd um sorted out we have a, a dog walker who we no longer have a dog but I got in touch with her and I said look Jan the boys love you any chance you might be able to pop up occasionally and just check the houses in one piece for me and um I said to the boys did Jan come in they said we saw her once she popped up with some chicken and some brownies for us I said that was nice and then I bumped into Jan I said so did you have to pop in? She went, oh, I was up every single morning, basically. I came in, but my boys go both go to the gym very early and mum works very early. She said, I popped in about seven o'clock. There was never anyone there. So I just tidied round. I put a wash on, did some tidying, <laughs> you know, put the clean clothes back in their room from the day before. And so basically the boys had no idea that <gasps> if Mary was coming in, they assumed that the other child was doing the clearing up of the kitchen. And so basically they said, no, we didn't think she'd come in at all. And she was like, yeah, I came in every day. <laughs> That, so cool. That's well. Talk to me about Everest because I think, as as I told you on email, when you said to me you were on Everest, I think it was the day after I'd watched the documentary on Disney Plus, oh, uh, Finding yes. Michael, which was extraordinary. Watched it the weekend actually, and I hadn't. I mean, look, I've talked to you about how I am on mountain bikes, going down uh, inclines. So for me, the idea of Everest is just like just leave it there. Yeah. I don't need to get closer to it. it it's not going to get closer to me. So that we're fine. But the thing that really struck me about that documentary is that I can imagine that once you do get to base camp, there is a part of your brain that goes, just go up a little bit. Just go on. Just go on. Yeah. It, no is the answer, basically. <laughs> um, I think, and this is where I talk about calculated risk. So for yeah. myself, seven people on average are dying a year on Everest. And the risk, therefore, does not outweigh the drive I would have to to achieve that goal mm -hmm. and you know I have a full life I love my life it's so active I do adventures you know I get my excitement to my kits from doing those things like Everest Base Camp walk and seeing the beauty of the Himalayas and when we got to Base Camp you know my when I look back on the videos and things because I was putting out quite a lot of video footage and stuff on Instagram I look my lips are blue pretty much from a certain height onwards and I hadn't my eye watch on and I was looking at my oxygen saturation it's about 85 percent and I thought gosh you know you know that was an incredible experience I loved it, it didn't feel like there was much risk for me mm -hmm. um, although quite a lot of people don't make it I had done Kilimanjaro four years previously that felt more risky because it's uh, higher than base camp but it's also much quicker you're literally summiting on the night of base of uh, night five and um i had two well four five of the group of 20 didn't make it but one group was one girl was helicoptered off the mountain and the other had the onset of cere cerebral edema and she was just not making sense you know she was sort of saying i can't wait for a bath i was like yeah dream on we're intense she was like i'm not camping i hate it i was like okay i'm guessing you're not right so you know that felt more risky to me Mm -hmm. um because it was much more intense so do I would I want to go up to, up to the to the top of Everest the answer is probably no actually it made me realize I would not want to do that because you know I wouldn't want to risk my life to do that and I think there is a risk to life because I think when you watch the Spencer uh, Matthews the finding um um Michael 
Michael, thank you. Um, film, it's phenomenal, but you realize how risky it is when they get higher up. When they're just coming, they found three bodies on the mountain. Mm. That's just horrific. That thought, and I think Aunt Middleton, when he made a documentary about doing it, and he just said, "I'm in this line. I've done the most risky things in the world. I might die here now, and there's nothing I can do about it. I, it's out of my control." And I very much think about controlling the controllables, and for myself, that's one of my mantras is control the controllables, and if you can't, let it go. Well, Aunt Middleton was stuck there. He's controlled what he can control, and now he's stuck in a queue. And he might die on Everest because there is a queue. A queue to go up? Yeah, they were just stuck in the queue, and basically you're all on one rope, and you're attached to the rope. And if someone's going slowly at the beginning, or, you know, there's so many people, because the window gets small and smaller of when you can summit, it has to be exactly the right weather conditions. And actually, it was hitting this point where there was such a rush to summit that night that ultimately it was out of his control. And I thought that's not that's not a, an, an acceptable risk for me. That sounds like a worst case scenario situation for you as well, because there's no there's no a measured response from your co-pilot. There's yeah, yeah. There, there's there's not there's no precedent for this. So that would yeah. be when I guess. Do you ever panic? I'm I am quite calm actually. I I don't often panic. Um, I'm thinking of like times when my children have had an incident or an accident. You know, blood everywhere. I will very much very calmly get them to hospital, sort it all out, and then it's only after that moment when you go, "What's oh, a little bit sick?" and you realise you're <laughs> having your stress reaction. But it's after the event. But I'm I, I think in an emergency and in a crisis, I've stopped at you know crashes on motorways and very been happy to sort of take control of the situation I think that's that sort of leadership that you're you probably inherently have from perhaps Mm. doing a job like I've done um and also what's a really interesting one is when I've stopped at an accident once I was in my flying kit instantly because you're in a uniform yeah nothing to do with driving or the roads instantly people look towards you because you're you've got a uniform on and you've got rank tabs on. So people look for you for that authority. So it's an interesting one, but um, no, I am pretty calm in an emergency. I'm just imagining you taking your son into A&E and them saying, uh, Mrs. Sixon, how did your son get covered in blood? You're like, he fell out of a big tree. Because <laughs> <laughs> I encouraged him to go up it. Oh yeah, we have done that. <laughs> um, I love this mantra, uh, control the controllables. When did you come up with that? Um. I, I think it's just something that actually we realise you've probably been taught throughout your time in the Air Force. And I think it really hit home to me. I was flying back from America and we've been on a big exercise out in America called Red Flag, which is literally like, <laughs> it is so cool. And then we were tasked to bring the jets home, which basically means you're going to do air to air refuelling coming across the Atlantic. Oh. And we uh, we Refuelling left- in the sky. In the sky. So you've got a big like airliner equivalent, which is full of fuel, and they have hoses hanging up the back with this basket on it. And all you have to do is at 30,000 feet and 400 miles an hour is extend a probe and place your moving probe into the moving basket. You know, it's just a, it's a, it's a little like cat and mouse. But anyway, um, you're thousands of miles from home. And if you get it wrong, then it's got quite serious implications, really. But you've got your wingmen who are watching going, she's missed again. You know, it's really stressful. And you're also told not to look at the basket because if you look at it, you tend to lunge as you get that final minute. And so you'll hit it and you'll damage the probe and the basket and you ingest the metal into your engine, which is not good. So you Mm -hmm. listen to your navigator and he's sitting behind you saying, up a bit right a bit I mean that's how untechnological it is but anyway we landed in in larges in the Azores and then we were doing the final leg home and 
we were in the thick cloud, we were tanking, and we heard that America had just shut their airspace. It was <gasps> nine. Oh, and it was just this moment where we went, we have no concept of what's going on. We, we can't even imagine a scenario whereby a continent shuts down, and certainly not America. And we're in thick cloud. And so this is where this control the controllables. And, and we're basically told it's this order of aviate, navigate, communicate. So the first thing that you do is you fly your jet. So control the controllables. Right, we're in thick cloud. Aircraft are being turned back, diverted. There's chaos on the airwaves. We're hearing this literally mad chat. And yet we've got no understanding what's happened. So let's go back to our basics, control what we can. So what is within my sphere of influence? Because... If you think about life, actually, Emma, imagine this sort of stress bucket. You think about your daily things that are going on. Our bucket fills up and it's things, I don't know, it could be the Ukrainian conflict. It could be what's happening at the weekend. All these things that are outside of our control, and yet they put these layers of stress into our bucket. And they stop you from being allowed to do what you need to be able to do in the here and now. So I say focus on what is within your sphere of influence. Let the rest of it go. And it empties your bucket out and allows you that focus prioritization now we realize that we didn't understand what was happening but our biggest risk now is a mid-air collision because of this chaotic airspace so we started to scan the airspace in front of us using our air-to-air radars and that's basically where that mantra really comes about is what can you focus on and let the rest of it go i have spoken to people who've got the most incredible as everyone does, everyone remembers exactly where they were on 9-11. I was on my way to Logan Airport, which felt a little bit too close for comfort, even though I was in a car. Uh, A friend of mine uh, missed uh, one of the flights because he had written down his flight number wrong, uh, his flight time wrong, sorry. On that flight? One of them. And like all of these, and and you know what it's like, the sort of proximity to something so globally sort of huge. Yeah. I have never spoken to somebody who was in the air. Yeah. And I'll tell you the final bit of it actually was we came over the UK and then we were in the cloud until that point. But when we got over to the UK, it all cleared up and we heard on the emergency, it's called the guard frequency and it's an emergency channel. And there was an American aircraft carrier and it was on a big exercise just off the south coast. So just in this sort of, you know, the Isle of Wight, almost in the Solent. And there's a five nautical mile exclusion zone around that ship. And this small aeroplane, little propeller aeroplane was just doing what, you know, on a sightseeing tour along the south coast, pootling along on what's called visual flight rules, which means you don't have to be on a radio frequency. You can just be avoiding cloud and just, you know, minding their own business. And basically they were flying directly towards the ship. And the Americans believed they were a terrorist. (gasps) And what we heard on the emergency frequency was that we're loading live weapons. We're about to shoot this aircraft down. And we're thinking, I mean, we still had no idea what's happened in America. And we're thinking, what? And it's, well, this is nothing to do with us. We're in training and on the transit flight. And then you realize very quickly that you can do something. You can have an impact. So we asked air traffic control, what can we do to assist? And they immediately just went, oh, my goodness, radar vectors gave us some direction. We headed down towards it. And fortunately, we tried to constantly reach them on the radio. And we fortunately, just before we got there, we managed to get through and they took, they diverted their course. And he literally had a matter of minutes and he would have been shot down over the UK that day. And so, yeah, I mean, I talk about that when I do my speaking, actually, because it's a really sort of impactful story to say, you know, Sometimes we don't know the bigger picture, but it's about being accountable for our actions as well and, and taking some possession of that um, and realising that, you know, just because it's not your job doesn't stop you from doing something and helping. 
Wow. That would have been... You've not heard a story like that one before. <laughs> I certainly haven't. And just, but you're right. I can understand why actually that's a, a brilliant story to parlay into your into your talks that you give because actually there's so many really crucial elements there and you can sort of once yeah. you dilute it from such a, a horrendous day yeah um you can and you talk about him taking a, do you mean the small plane guy taking accountability for the fact that should have been on your radio should have been in communication well, not really actually i was thinking more about us and because ultimately we we could have just sort of said well that, that's not our job but actually you realize that sometimes there's a bigger picture mm-hmm. and that you've got to step up and when i'm talking about business to businesses a lot one of the areas that they're seeing huge problems in is accountability and decision making, especially as this younger generation are coming through. It's this almost this feeling of I don't want to make a decision. And so they just constantly step back from that decision making cycle and mm. don't want the accountability of it. They don't want that stress. So it's all around collaboration and, you know, the team making the decision. But ultimately, sometimes we talk about option generation for the leader to make the decision. So you're including your team and it's very empowering, but actually the accountability sits in the leader. And I think that's a really good differential. You you touched on something there that I've really, really noticed. And we can come on to one of the elements a little bit later, but it's about this idea of accountability. And I almost blame that idea of where there is a blame, there is a claim. That means that no one says sorry anymore. No yeah. one and the and I actually think as I as I get older and wiser, Mandy. Um I <laughs> not as I, old as me, it's all right. <laughs> but, I do, but I do think that one of the things that I don't have a problem doing now that I used to really struggle with is going, I screwed up. Yeah. That was completely on me. I misread it, I got it wrong. I whether it's I was oversensitive, I didn't have all the information, it was a knee jerk, whatever it is, I actually feel as soon as you start doing that, there is a weight that gets lifted off your shoulders as well. Yeah. And and so, again, this is something I talk a lot about. In fact, I did this on Friday. I was I had a, a call with a, it was with the CEO of a company that I was going to perhaps do some work with. And I completely messed up. I was in the Ivy having lunch with a friend. <laughs> I got this phone call. She said, are you ready for this call? You're not joining the Zoom call. And I said, oh, my God, I'm having lunch. I'm so sorry. I've completely lost track of the time. And rather than saying, oh, I'm really sorry, I got caught up in another meeting and and, and giving some bullshit yeah. Actually, I just said, I'm really sorry. I have messed up massively. I have wasted your time. I have huge apologies. I'm free for the rest of the afternoon, you know. And actually, she said, and I said, I, you know, I really like to eat a lot of humble pie. And she said, well, you don't need to do that, but I do appreciate your honesty. Mm. And I think that's part of it, isn't it? And something I very much talk about is culturally within organisations, how important it is to accept that when we've made a mistake. And it's something they've really worked on in aviation as a whole, actually, to be honest, Emma, is that, you know, we used to have this no blame culture where we went, OK, we want to know about things that are going wrong. So let's have a no blame culture. I said, you can do anything wrong and no one will get into trouble. And then they realised mm-hmm. that that was right. Because um, we'd been in a blame culture until that point where we, someone does something wrong and we can blame them. Mm-hmm. And then they went to no blame. And then they really they needed to be a middle ground. And they found this thing called a just culture, which sort of sat in the middle. And it was a culture that recognises that people make mistakes and they will develop unhealthy norms and things like that and shortcuts but there's zero tolerance for recklessness. And so it's this concept, and I really like that. And it's something I've sort of feel I've taken out of aviation and then really used throughout business as well is, is that recognizing that, you know, we need to talk openly about mistakes. But if you think about it, if you think back to when you were little and at school and you did a spelling test 
and you came out and you got nine out of 10, what would your parents say to you? Mm. Did you get wrong? Mm. Because that's the way our brain works is that we always focus on that, the one wrong. If you get straight A's and then an F, everyone will say, what's the F in? And it's that, that, that negative brain is that one that we look at because it's, we focus on the failure rather than on the success. And so if you think, if you're tying that into suddenly then saying, we want people to talk openly about mistakes, but yet we've 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 basically told them that mistakes are bad from being five, six years old. Um, and so it's a very interesting one that we're suddenly in business, we're saying, embrace it, talk openly about mistakes. Well, people still don't don't want to because it's so against the grain. And I think that's a really big thing that we have to try to get over. But you're right, I think it's about experience and age that comes with that almost freezes up to say, God, it's brilliant. I just love it that I can just be really honest and say I've messed up. Mm. You know? And and you get a much better response because of it, don't you? Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I was talking to a friend the other day, and she's she's got a really uh, complex job with lots of responsibility, and she's mentoring quite a few people at the moment. And she was mentoring somebody, and they came back, and she's like, yeah, I don't, I don't think you should do it like that. And she said, but you told me to do it like that. And she just said... Do you know what? I've changed my mind because I don't think it's right. <laughs> when she said, she said a few years ago, I would never have been able, I would no. never have wanted to say I changed my mind in front of somebody because I would think yeah. it would make me look less uh, authoritative. It would yeah. somehow diminish my role. Yeah, but you're right. I think, I think, I just think it's really quite embracing. Maybe it's this whole philosophy of getting older and giving less Fs, you know, that sort of feel. <laughs> and thinking, yeah, you know what? If you don't like me or you you, you think I've done something bad, well, I don't really care that much. I'm doing my best. And that's the main thing. It's true. I also, I tend to ask all of my guests, well, as you know, uh, quite a few questions before we start recording. And I wanted to come back to something you said there about when you're giving talks, because we've talked about this sort of different culture with younger people and perhaps yeah. what they're frightened of and what they're less likely to embrace. But when I asked you what makes you hopeful, it was actually what you're seeing from all of the young people that you speak to. And I think they, I do think the younger generations get such a hard time. We just characterize them as being constantly on social media, just little piglets suckling at the teeth of their iPhones and various smart devices. And yet you're seeing them in a completely different context. And I think there would be value for listeners and for me as well, just to hear about what, what the reality is a bit more. Yeah. So 
to just go back a stage so basically when I left the air force and I didn't know what to do I mean I did what everyone does which is basically trained to be an airline pilot because that's what you assume your skill set is mm. and actually I was flying with a young girl I'd joined as a volunteer reservist to fly young cadets because I just really wanted to complete the circle and give something back into this organization that I'd actually had so much pleasure from but also I didn't want young girls particularly to turn up and never see another female pilot on the front line and so Basically, I was flying with this girl and she turned out to be a really talented pilot. And it's actually how I finished my book is a story about her. And but at the end of it, she just said to me, I want to be just like you. And it was these three words that completely changed my direction because I'd been about to go into the airlines. I was just going to follow the norm. And then just like you, you realize that actually maybe I have a responsibility to use my story to, to a bigger, to a greater good. And I had that moment where I realized that that was going to be my biggest risk. I was going to take a huge leap of faith, not go into the norm, not take this solid income, set up my own business and start doing speeches at schools and things. And I started to go into schools at a really basic level, primary school, secondary school. Then the parents got in touch and said, oh, we heard you did want to do businesses. I was like, yeah. So it's just grown from there. But really going back to that student level is you realise that those, I joined this organisation called Inspiring the Future, actually, which was um, set up by Nick Clegg's wife, Miriam Gonzalez. And in one of their literature, they said 76% of girls will only go into a career where they've met someone or they've seen that job. And you realise mm-hmm. that maybe we have a responsibility to educate, to get in there. To Now, the wonderful thing with social media, there's, I think there's a lot of negatives about it, I'll be honest, but I think one of the real positives is that the younger generation are seeing women and men in different roles doing different different sort of um things and basically they realize that everything is open to them Mm. and so they are being able to pick up role models some of them are not great role models admittedly um as my boys got quite obsessed with a certain man that was in prison recently um mandy how did you handle that that was an interesting one i noticed that they, they were getting really misogynistic and they were making really like derogatory comments about women and i was thinking Where's this coming from? You know, this is not the people, these are not the boys I've brought up. And they were going, well, yeah, you should just be. And they even saying to me, well, you should just be back in the kitchen, like jokes. I was like, who are you? Why are you even saying this? And then, of course, I started to look into the Andrew Tate side of things. And I realised that basically there was a gap that he was filling in a lot of these young men. And lots of my friends were saying, we couldn't understand it. We went on holiday and my lovely teenage boy was suddenly coming out with all this you know words that he would would have never used before we're all looking at them going where has that come from it's not come from us and it led to a lot of conflict because suddenly it's a different it's a different dialogue and it was really hard to handle because he was fulfilling something that was missing which was all of this empowerment about girls and you can do anything and actually where was the white man in that Mm. the young white teenage boy and I say white because a lot has been done on diversity as well and it was just that feeling of everything's changing but where we are is not Mm. so actually he was fulfilling that for them it's very very, I'm finding it very fascinating and it's one of the reasons why my podcast has taken a bit of a turn because it used to be a far more general conversation. And now, as you know, because I send you the questions beforehand, it's quite specific to dig into particular things. And one of the reasons for that is because I unwittingly, and I like to think I've got a good filtration system slash audition process, but I was noticing that people were coming on to just sell themselves and sell how great they were and sell 
sell a, almost like a dream for want of a better expression. Yeah. And there was nothing behind it. Absolutely. Every single day I get emails from people saying, someone wants to come on the podcast, they've turned their life around and there's no substance to it whatsoever. They just have the gift of the gab. And what I find really interesting is that's really taken off, but there's clearly an appetite for people to just look at someone and parrot People yeah. are looking for influence. So I think as yeah. for me as a content creator, it's my responsibility to platform people who have something to say and have value to add. I absolutely agree. And you you asked me about what, what inspires me about that next generation as they are coming through is that, you know, they are realising that they don't have to just follow the norms. And I'm liking that. So mm. I'm loving the fact that, you know, OK, so my son is 19 and he's decided not to go to university because he just looked at it and gone, hold on a minute. Why do I want to come out with £60,000 of debt? So he set up his own business. He's really driven. He's got two limited companies. He's got a warehouse. He does, you know, he's a real entrepreneur. And yet he gets slated quite often from old friends who have gone on the uni route because they're taking a more traditional route. And he's been quite, let's say, vociferous in in his (laughs) condemnation of people that are just following blinkedly because they don't know what else to do. And so Actually, what I'm seeing is not just through him, but youngsters that are contacting me all the time on social media. And basically, when I wrote this book, I didn't write it because I, I wanted to be an influencer or anything like that. I wrote it because everyone said, you've got to write a book. And I kept saying, no, no, no. And then I went, all right. Then. So wrote it with a really good friend. But what I hadn't appreciated was that youngsters would read it, 13, mm-hmm. probably about 13 years onwards. And they're the ones, and that's why I thought I'd better go onto Instagram because I need to be able to contact them. And then they are the ones that literally get in touch with me daily with, oh my goodness, I, you know, you've made me realize that if you can do it, then I can do it. Now, my journey was, I joined the Air Force in 94, so nearly 30 years ago, but I grew up in Manchester, working class, mother, teacher, dad, carpet fitter, then ran his own business. So it wasn't like I was from this privileged you know, um, environment at all. I went to a state school. If I can do it, then why can't you? And I think that's their reasonings that they suddenly go, actually, that is fantastic. And so I am seeing people going, yeah, you know what? I can be an astronaut. I can be, you know, an engineer. And I'm seeing that more and more. And I'm literally getting daily emails from the, or you know, not emails, direct messages from all these youngsters. And and, and I'm, they come up to me in schools and they contact me afterwards. And I think that's brilliant. Really, really powerful. That is such a brilliant perspective to hear because I think so often we just hear that they just want to, for years people have been saying, oh, kids just want to be famous. And there's just, they use this word as, as this is what they think the future will hold. But to actually hear what you're saying is yeah. really pleasing. It's yeah, nice to I, I do. I am inspired by them. And I think we need to, we need to just nurture that. And I think it's a tough, I think it's a tough world they're growing up in. You know, when when I was younger, you know, I'd go back home and shut my door and be on the friend to my best friend, phone to my best friend for hours. But there was no one else coming into my world at that point. For mm-hmm. them, their world at home, their safety zone is being bombarded constantly by social media and how mm-hmm. we should look and how we should look at home even. Well, my goodness, at home, I look like I'm, well, I can look most of the time. I don't, um, yes, hence my friend when I said I'd go to speak to Emma. And she just said, 
crikey Mandy you better stick some lipstick on or something I was like yeah she gets me as I am you know I went for a facial the other day and on my birthday it was my 50th last week and I went for this facial my husband had treated me to a spa day and she said what's your skincare routine and I said flannel and some and some moisturizer and the woman burst out laughing went no really I went no really (laughs) that didn't go down well in a spa as you can imagine so she gave me a lot of products to take away um we will take a, a slight tangent here. Uh, when you are speaking to your friends in the RAF, please encourage them to wear SPF when they are flying because the oh, UV yeah. is stronger uh, at the yeah. higher altitude. We have a lot of friends, actually commercial pilots, particularly who have got skin cancer on their faces. <gasps> and it's and if they are a first officer, it's on the right-hand side of their face. And then once they become a captain, it becomes on the left-hand side of their face. Isn't that shocking? That is, I, there are friends that I will be texting that information immediately after this. Please do, because it is becoming an issue. It wow. Really is. I thought yeah. I was going to, I thought I was taking a very, not lighthearted, but sort of a silly tangent, but that's actually. Yeah. No, no, it, no, 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 that's absolutely. It, it's going through the glass. So they are ending up um, at my age as well. So yeah. sort of late 40s, early 50s. Um, let's talk about your book, An Officer Not a Gentleman, because um, I wanted to find out why, what the idea was that you had that meant that you decided to write something. Because books don't just happen. You don't just pull them out of thin air. They they have to actually, I think you have to really want to do it. Like you have to know in your core that you can sit for however many months and write that, even if you are writing it with somebody else. So when people were saying to you, you should write a book, you should write a book. That's great, but there has to be a, a fundamental pillar. There has yeah. to be an idea. What was your idea? So, well, it was, it was to be honest, it was just autobiographical because whenever I did my speeches, people said, oh my gosh, this would make a really good book. In fact, this would make a really good film because actually when I was looking at going into this, I failed all of the tests to be a pilot. I was told I had an obesity problem because women's height charts only went up to five foot eight and I was six foot tall. So they said I should be nine and a half stone. <laughs> At six foot tall, I was like, what? So they said to me at 12 and a half stone, you've got an obesity problem. You need to lose three stone in weight before you can get this job. And I was like, okay. Again, didn't challenge. You know, 17, 18 year old girl just was told I was obese. And so I I thought that was the case. So, and my parents didn't challenge. And I'd look back now, I think, my goodness, you know, if, if I got told at the age of, you know, 18 or my children got told at 18 that they were obese because they were 12 and a half stone at six foot tall. That's crazy. Mm. But we weren't, we didn't challenge them. So there was loads of little bits that I thought, you know what, it would be good for people to hear these outside of just my speeches, because I think it is about recognising we do need to have a voice. We need to challenge. Um, It was an interesting story because it was really at the cusp where women were just being taken on into the Air Force. So when I failed all the tests, Again, my boss of this university club challenged the Air Force, say, why is this girl that can fly failing the tests? Maybe your tests are wrong. What? But our tests have never been tested on women. And so they took me on as a test case because they basically wanted to find out this woman, how far she'd get with no aptitude and how long it would take for her to fail, basically. That's what I found out. Um, <gasps> oh, so they told me that. They told me that as well. So it's like, here's your dream, but you won't make it. So again, all of these psychological learnings that at the age of 20-ish to 21, you're being told you're not good enough and you will fail, but we are going to give you a chance. Well, what does that do to you? 
you know, you want to talk about imposter syndrome. Well, that's going to plant that seed of doubt, isn't it? Yeah. When I do my speech, I always say, um, and what did that do? And everyone goes, gave you the fire to take on a system. I said, no, it did not. It planted <laughs> a seed of doubt that said, you're crap and you're not good enough and you're probably going to fail. Because every time, because it's really tough. I mean, the fast check training is like doing an advanced driving test twice a day for 10 months. It's intense. You know, it's challenging. And basically you fail a trip and then you lose your confidence, you fail the next one, and then you get worse and worse. And again, there was times where, for example, a chief instructor would take me flying and he'd say, right, Mandy, we're going to do this. And I said, why are you making it easy? He said, I'm not making it easy. You've got the skill. All you need is the confidence and you've had you've lost your confidence. Mm. So, you know, and I reflect about him in my in my book and, and say, again, these people, I've I've had incredible allies, all men, all the whole way through who have helped me, mentored me, picked me up, teams that have literally come behind me. And I think that's really important because I think so often we talk about female role models, having female role models. All my role models were men, all my allies were men. And I think it's a very nice twist to basically say, we often get to where we are regardless of gender. It's not about the gender who supports you. It's about having people that have got your back. Mm. And I talk about that trusted wing person, like our wingman is everything and so having someone that's literally checking your six is essential and I think it's essential for life and I think when I started to put the book together I didn't really want to write a book because I've never been good at writing and I I'm good at speaking and but trying to get that onto paper and I realized that the story was there and that's when I worked with a brilliant friend of mine who's a journalist Rob um, who I'd known at uni and he was with the BBC and was just leaving them actually he was a sports journalist and the two of us worked together and of course I had the stories he had the just the ability to really hone that into mm. some you know some great words and so yeah we put it together and then it was rejected from every publishing house but I got this one email back which just honestly made my blood boil it said plain books for a male readership that have no interest in a woman's story God, I was furious. I thought in the 21st century, really? I am getting an email from a major publishing house basically saying that men aren't interested in your story, which is completely wrong because I would say it's been 50-50. In fact, probably more men have read it than women. Mm. It's, you know, sold over 30,000 copies globally for a self. So I self-published on Amazon. And so surprisingly, that publisher has got in touch to say, we want to publish your book. And I said, thank you very much, but I'm OK. I'm going to stick with what I'm doing because I, I like being in charge of it myself. And I thought and they said, well, we'll publish book too. And I sort of nearly signed the deal. And I suddenly thought, actually, I don't want to go down that route. I've really enjoyed being in charge of the whole process myself, having never been in publishing before. It's been a new world. And guess what? I can do it. It's manageable. It does seem that you like someone telling you no or you can't. Despite what you say on your talks, it is quite galvanizing because you just look for the alternative route. Yeah. Until you find the successful one. I think there is a bit of that, actually. And I think the book was a real classic example of that, whereby, again, you're told no. And I I think, but why? There's no reason for it. There are no other books published by a female pilot in the UK. This is crazy. Why would you not take on that story? It's a great story. And so that's when I just think, well, there's got to be other different alternative routes. And so I have always been one to say, okay, that door's shut. Well, let me see how else I can get there. And I think it's quite a positive way of doing things, you know. Um, And I've sort of probably defaulted to that. I think, and it ties in with that resilience piece when we talk about risk and resilience. And, you know, when I look at resilience, I think to me, it always ties in very closely with 
purpose. And I think when we have a good mm. purpose and a really strong goal, it's easier to be more resilient because you take a knockback, but you think, but I still want to get there. So now I'm demonstrating resilience, but I'm not thinking of it as resilience. I'm thinking it as, as goal-driven. Right. So, you know, it's an interesting way we look at things. It can't knock your purpose. A rejection can't knock your purpose, but it can, it just means that you have to roll with the punches a little bit, dust yeah, yourself you off quickly and move on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I've always been a believer in making things happen. So I'm really happy to put myself out there. You know, like, I mean, I contacted you, didn't I? And I said, hey, Emma, I've heard a few of your podcasts, really like it. You're after a guest. So you could have gone, no, actually, no, she's not very interesting. Or you could, yeah, great. Yes, please. But it is, it's interesting, isn't it? Again, put yourself out there. What's the worst that can happen? Mm. It says no. Well, let's talk about you being a woman in the RAF, because as you said, it was at the very early stages of of women being, uh, what do you call it, uh, brought into the, was that right? Or were you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was very, very early days. So I was at uni when they changed the rules, allowing women to be pilots on the front line. And Joe Salter, who was the first one that went through, she was already in the Air Force and transferred across from engineering. So she'd already gone through her sort of officer training inside. So she sort of went straight through with two other girls. The other two didn't make it. And then I was in the sort of the next wave that came through who had sort of taken in as recruited in. Mm. And so it was sort of like two and a half to three years before we then got through to the flying training system. Um, but it was it was it was tough, I'll be honest. Um, did I see it as being any tougher than it was for the men? I think I was pretty thick skinned at that stage. I, I had an amazing I call them the band of brothers. So guys who were my best friends, because you're going through the training system together. So not just one course lasting six months, but four years. I was yeah. with pretty much the same group of people and they just become brilliant friends. And, you know, I'm godparents, their children, that sort of thing. And so you a classic example would be I was going through um, Hawk training at Valley. So that's like the Red Arrows aeroplane. And all the instructors would make one comment to me each a day. I mean, 20 instructors would say, oh, man's, we can tell which aircraft you've parked again. It's the one that's obviously not parked straight. You know, all of these, just mine. Oh, Mandy's going to be some time. She's going to be putting a lippy on before she comes out. You know, um, and I said, oh, sod off. Oh, she's on her period. So oh. each one, a tiny comment, non-meant in a nasty manner. Honestly, there was there was no malice behind any of it. And yet 20 comments a day to one of one person it's probably quite a lot. And it was the guys on my tea on my course that said to the boss, can you have a word with the instructor? We don't really like how they're speaking to Mandy. And when they said it to me, I don't even notice it because I had become so thick skinned. It had just been part of what I was hearing. Mm. And you realise that when you start to change your norm of what is acceptable, what was acceptable became higher and higher and higher. So actually it was taking an awful lot to tip me into, wow, that's a rude comment you know, it would have to be pretty rude to actually register on my obiter. Mm. And yet they weren't liking it. And so they were the ones that highlighted it. And that sort of thing really shows when, you know, when you talk about, say, businesses, when I often speak at diversity events and, you know, it's the men say, but what can we do? Well, that's what you can do. Mm. You call out poor behaviours, you know, be the ally, spot things. You know, it doesn't have to be that you're always thinking, oh, I've got to be there at the women's network events, but it's the daily little things that, that make a huge difference. And I think, you know, when I look at flying kit, there was never any female flying kit. So I wore male wife-fronted long johns under my flying suit for the whole of my career, which cut into your hips, 
they're really uncomfortable they're really hot around your crotch um you can't have a, a wee in an airplane but a man can um so you basically give yourself a urine infection as i did on one occasion um little things like that first day in the office in um, a squadron every screensaver is a naked woman the next day they were all naked men <laughs> who the next did day, that, who did that? <laughs> i don't know who did that i don't know my technical skills weren't really good but i did manage that one but basically, and they're all landscapes, you know, all the posters are up for all naked women, you know, things like that just change, but it was slow changes to happen. Mm. And I think it was about recognising that I was coming into an all male environment. They'd never had a female pilot on the squadron. And, and that was different for them as well. So, you know, the first time I went to the Gulf, I walked into this room in my sort of barracks. It's like a porter cabin that you're sleeping in and it's wall to wall pornography. The room next door had none. And they chose every time I went out there to give me the one room that that stuck up pornography on all the walls. It's just grim. And so I'd take it all down and yell, porn's up, boys, you know, and put it outside the door. And they'd be like scrapping for it. Um, but it was, it was an interesting one. And it was an interesting one as well for the wives, because I'm now going on away with their husbands. Mm. And so how did they feel about me? And that took a while to build the trust between the wives and myself, where they didn't think... My one aim in life was to try to sleep with their husbands when I had a really good looking bloke who I was you know, engaged to at home. So it's interesting. And there was a lot of changes that had to take place for me, but also um, as well for, for the whole of the, uh, the culture. It would I guess my um, my immediate conclusion would be you had to adapt. And by adapt, I mean you had to become one of the guys. Um, but it doesn't sound as though that was necessarily what you did yes yes and no to be honest so when we went to the when we went to red flag that time um I, I, I it's quite a funny story because I got dressed up and I sort of entered this it was going to be the first night they'd all seen me out of my flying suit so I put this dress on and I had lipstick on I was like I am all out you know I arrived five minutes late to make an entrance there's 200 men standing in a foyer but this one guy who was my French navigator called Michel Dupont, he turned and he looked and he's very good looking. He looked like the George Clooney of the fast jet world. He looks up towards me. He said, oh, Mandy, you're looking beautiful this evening. At which point the guy next to him like hit him across the head. and went, you can't say that to Mandy. She's one of the boys. And Michel turned back and he went, Puh, you Brits, you still have so much to learn about women. <laughs> <laughs> it was really funny. And it sort of turned into like a pivotal moment in many ways for myself, because I think at, at, until that point, I'd been desperately trying to be one of the boys, especially when I got to the squadron. And I was morphing my language, my behaviours. I was drinking more. I was probably swearing. Well, maybe I hadn't changed that much. But, you know, I was changing. I was changing what I was wearing. I mean, we went yeah. on detachments. We could wear civilian clothing on a, when, when we went overseas. And you're flying and they all wore a blazer, a blue shirt of some sort, stripes or checks and chinos and deck shoes. That's what they all wore. It's like a civilian uniform. Guess what I was wearing? Mm. Same outfit. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I, I've actually become one of the boys. And I never wanted to be one of the boys. I wanted to be able to be Mandy. And I said, there's a gulf between fitting in and belonging and and that's what that would take me a while to find that. I, not so much when I was going through the flying training course, ironically, because these were people that really knew me. It was when I really got to the squadron that I really desperately tried to fit in. Mm. And that's when I changed. And I don't know if you notice it, but I mean, when we went to Everest, we went with six guys on my team that we met, all strangers, you know, and six guys were from Wigan. And instantly I started like, hey, I started putting on my Manchester accent again. And I was like, yeah, we're getting the beers in. And I thought, 
my husband was like looking at me going who why are you doing that fitting in we we instantly tweak our behaviors to fit into the people that we're with and it's just something that we do but it's about recognizing and catching yourself before you morph into Mm. that and trying to be be your true self it's very true, isn't it? That's that's good advice because I think it can be very easy to just be a chameleon and you think, oh, not, yeah. I, I'll be fine if I just almost become part of the crowd. But actually, yeah. yeah. No. Um, I asked you if you had any regrets, and you mentioned again your time with the RAF, saying, "I regret that I didn't speak up and challenge the system when you when I was actually serving," and I wondered what that meant, like what needed to be challenged, and what are the consequences that you think maybe of you not challenging when you yeah, were there? So are... The thing that I was referring to, I think when we were, when we were discussing that bit was actually when I'd had children, again, the Air Force had not really had anyone to sort of look at to sort of, you know, it's a prototype for this one because in the old days when women had children, they just left the Air Force. And so now you've got people that you spent three million pounds training who are going to have children when they're about 30 ish, maybe Yes. Yeah, I was 30 and 31. What do you do with them? And so basically I had my children on a ground tour. So I'd done my fast jet tour on the tornado. Then I went, then I got pregnant. I went to a ground tour because you can't fly when you're pregnant. And as I learned to my detriment with my first baby. um, And basically I then was on a ground tour, had two boys. And then at the end of the ground tour, I said to my posting officer, what's my next, what job could I do next? And he said, straight back to Tornado, and Tornado was just about to deploy to Afghanistan. And I said, got a four-month-old baby and a 21-month-old toddler. Like, what do you want me to do with them? And they said, well, that's not really our problem. If you don't do that job, well, then you're not really going to be promoted because you're not progressing in the Air Force. And I said, well, but I've got a baby. I've got a baby. And they said, he said, I said, I found a job, which is... It's, it's, you know, I was living in Winchester then. I said, it's half an hour. It's in Salisbury. It's, it has to be done by a tornado pilot, but no tornado pilot wanted to do it. Can I do that one? And he said, well, if you take that, you'll never get promoted. That is a dead end job, Mandy, and you can kiss goodbye to your career. Now, I said, well, I don't feel I have a choice because I can do this job. It's sort of nine to five. It was Monday to Friday. It was a second line job in direct support of operations on the front line. And he said, well, that's it. That will be the end of your career. So in some ways, I kept a job, but gave up my career. Now, what a huge decision to have to make when you've just had a baby. Could I have not thought, well, and this is where I didn't challenge. I just went, okay, that's fine. Then that's what I'll do. And when I hit the end of my my 38th birthday, which was 12 years ago, it's a natural point to leave. Now, the only way you can stay is if you chain, if you've been promoted. Well, obviously, I couldn't be promoted because I'd gone into a dead end job. Or you then change your commission type and things like that. And, and yet not one person said to me, would you like to stay? Now, at this point, my children are sort of seven and eight. I have probably got more flexibility to step back in, to perhaps go into an instruction. Again, no one offered me anything. And again, I didn't challenge the system to say, look, I think you need to look at how women are treated once they had children. You know, you want women to be pilots and yet there's got to be some flexibility coming up with different solutions for them. You know, I never did any of that. I just left. Mm. And I think actually it's I feel a responsibility now to actually be able to offer my experiences and say this is how perhaps things need to change, um, which I think, you know, could be quite important. But yeah. That was a good grip. Yeah, that's to be told, well, 
you can do this so you can keep doing what you love and what you've been trained for but it's just going to be sort of a quiet end to your career that's yeah it was it was really odd actually and it was a real shame but I mean I do think regret is a futile emotion so I don't normally engage in regret apart from not buying a beach hut at Muddyford um (laughs) that was your regret that you put when we talked about why why was that such a regret oh because when we left I left the air force my husband said why don't we use the uh, money you get this lump sum of 20 or 20,000 and buy a beach hut at Muddyford and I said don't be ridiculous who would buy a beach hut for 20,000 pounds and they're now like I don't know 250 and and we always went down there the whole summer we'd go down there and every time I'm down there I'm thinking I wish I had a beach hut (laughs) I wish I had a beach hut and so it became my big regret was not buying a beach hut at Muddyford not just for the price value increase but more just for the whole way of life and I love that adventure of just being feral on a beach you know (laughs) and you can stay in it for the whole summer there's solar panels and there's toilets and it's you know people live there for the whole sort of four months in the summer with my two feral boys it would have been heaven (laughs) um you said there about like uh be 38 is kind of the age where you age out for want of a better expression and I that really struck me because back in my journalism days I used to interview quite a few sports people and it's quite common for people to end their professional sports career in their late 30s. And it can lead to an absolute crisis of confidence, identity crisis, because you're so focused on this one particular thing for such a long time. And then it ends. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I could imagine that for sports people as well. That's huge you know, um, and and probably a very similar read across, actually, as you say, to the military. But um, I suppose with military personnel, at least you can carry on flying. You know, it's a different role, but you can go into commercial flying. Um, But with with the sports people, I suppose that has been that one sole purpose. And suddenly, you know, when you are getting older and or injured or whatever, that must be really, really hard. And I know a lot of people do struggle, actually, on that transition of leaving the military and this club and this team ethos to suddenly being out to the other side and I think we do see a lot of mental health problems as a mm. consequence of that. um yeah one thing I do in my job I I have stressful days in my job sometimes but I try very quickly to come back to two things like it's it's not I'm not a junior doctor I've had plenty <laughs> of sleep and I'm not in a war zone And yet you have got into a jet, you have flown into, forgive me if I use the wrong wording, by the way, but you've flown into enemy territory and your objective of that mission is possibly to release weapons. And one of the consequences of that will be that there will be casualties. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And it's the normal question I get when I speak to schools, primary school children is the, have you killed anyone? And it's like, (laughs) oh my gosh, it's the one question I really hate. So basically, yeah, there is. And that's why we talk about calculated risk and measured risk, those things as well. And so I think that's when I can safely say that I've never dropped a weapon, you know, even in conflict, basically on civilian casualties, and we've I've been literally on a targeting run whereby um, everything was happening and three to and all my switches are live. I'm literally we're targeting this huge big gun site, and I was about to drop a weapon and my my navigator just went stop, 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 and instantly all you make all your switches and you said what, what happened? He goes oh there's a guy with a camel 
and he's walking along, nomadic traveller, and he would have been injured if not killed if our bomb had been released. So that's it's a it's yeah. no brainer. So so it's that stop. Now, I think as Brits we were very very good at that. I'll be brutally honest. Um, I think some different nationalities were, are not quite so good at stopping. They have a process, and my end point is the weapon release, and that's what I've been tasked to do. So that's what they would do. Mm-hmm. That was not what we did. And you have different levels of um, priority for a target as well. So is this a priority one, two, or three? And if it's a three target, which ours was, then it's a no loss of civilian life. Mm-hmm. And so there is that feeling of, you know what, if it's a priority one target and it's you have got to, you know, drop your weapons, you know, sort of come hell or high water type thing because it's essential this is is destroyed. Well, then that's it might be a different mindset. And again, um, I was we were on a big mission up near Baghdad, actually, in the middle of the night. And I was um, in a cooperative attack with someone and we were which means basically two airplanes are flying on one aircraft is going to release the weapons and and the other aircraft me is going to basically laser put the laser energy into the point on the building that we want the weapon to go in so the weapon is released the weapon then picks up the laser energy and flies in directly to give a pinpoint accuracy and so just remembering maverick because that was bob's job (laughs) bob's job bob's job was to do that I was Bob. Yeah, what can I say? <laughs> so, yeah, well, Bob was in my back seat. So, um, yeah. So basically, with Bob in my back seat, he's targeting this thing, and it was a fiber optics building, and it was a quite high priority because all of the intelligence that we were getting was about to go underground if they connected up their fiber optics um, network, who were lacing the target. And there's a, an unmanned aerial vehicle called a Predator, which was above us, and it was videoing the whole thing from the Americans. Anyway, we did this, the weapon went in, it was all, you know, we came back. I mean, it was literally like the 4th of July. There was weapons being fired at us all the time. It was far, it was President Bush Jr. had just taken over his presidency. And I think it was a bit of a show of force of this is what I can do. But it also tied into the intelligence of this fiber optics network. And basically, when we looked north, my navigator said, are your, are your night vision goggles up or down, Mandy? And I said, oh, they're up. And he goes, leave them that way. And I was like, what? instantly click them and the whole sky is lit up with like tracer rounds uh, weapons being fired up surface to where missiles are being up it's literally the whole sky and we're going straight through the middle of all of that to get to our target so that is quite oh do i want to see them or not if you pop them back up it's a nice black sky twinkly sky stars you go oh that's all very pretty <laughs> Um, anyway but when we came back the um the predator guy said would you want to come and see the weapon release and I sort of, yeah, okay, yeah, why not? And we went over, and it's all in um, infrared, so all the, the white bits are hot. And basically we see a guy opening the door of our building that we're about to hit, and he has a cigarette and a cup of tea. <gasps> basically, he throws his tea on the floor, and you can see it leaves a big white patch of heat. He shuts the door. He goes into the building. My weapon goes into the other side, and I literally went, oh my God, I've just seen me dropping a weapon on someone that's now died. And that's really real. That's really horrible to see, which again, people say, I've had horrible comments like, well, you shouldn't have joined if you didn't like that, you know, but this is the reality of war. You're not going to feel good about that. That's not what you're, you're there to do a job. And, you know, that was the reality was really hideous. Anyway, he then opens the door 
He must have been literally in the doorframe, I reckon. He opens the door, he runs out, he gets into his vehicle and he just starts the car and he drives straight through a fence. And then all you can see are all these fence posts literally being pulled off as he's driving straight through a desert with all these fence posts like being pulled behind him all the way. And I just thought, oh, thank God he survived. Because you don't want, you're not, you're not bloodthirsty. You're not there mm. because kill people. You're there to do a role and to do a job. And and there will be loss of life as a potentially as a consequence of that. And that is going to affect you. Of course it will. Mm. But that is that you probably need to have come to terms with that you will be doing that before you go out to that area of conflict or before, before you even in, in, embark on that journey. And it comes back to everything else that you've said previously, control the controllables, uh, risk analysis, calculated risk, all of these things. It's weighing everything up and making an informed decision about whether to proceed and knowing that that is part of it yeah and but, but your mission is to not make that be part of it as a regular thing it's to yeah I mean um I was shot at once by a surface to air missile actually on a mission um of which we managed to evade the the missile and, and we put out I mean my navigator saw it launch and it launched in a heat-seeking mode and he just shot, <laughs> and I just was like you know instant drills again going back to what you've been taught to do, practised it many times. I did this manoeuvre and we put some flares out, which are basically pyrotechnics that burn at really, really, oh, just like Top Gun. They put the flares out at the top of that 10G manoeuvre, at which point I said to my son, that just wouldn't happen. And he said, it's not a documentary, Mum. <laughs> I was like, that wouldn't happen. We wouldn't be able to run after you've just ejected. That wouldn't happen. So anyway, um, but yeah, so we did this manoeuvre and I did uh, evade the missile. And it was quite funny because I met Tom Cruise uh, last summer at an air show. And um, the guy, I was standing with the guy, the head of the Air Force, uh, Air Chief Marshal, Mike Wixton was there. And he said, I used to serve with Mandy. She's written a book, actually. Look, I'm in it. And he basically hands Tom Cruise my book. And it was perfect PR opportunity. Thank you for that. Incredible. Uh, and basically, Tom flicks through it and he went, oh, my goodness. And Mike Weeks went, there's me. There's me next to Mandy uh, in the Ali Al-Saleb in Kuwait. And Tom said, oh, my goodness, you two are the heroes. And I said, yeah, but can I just say, I don't think you could run after a jet. You did not. <laughs> I did. I did have that conversation. He said, yeah, I think it would be tricky. <laughs> Um, I because I'm a bit of a nerd for those films. I have actually watched on YouTube real fighter pilots talking about what is and what isn't plausible, and um, because that's how I spend my free time. <laughs> nice. And did they say that? Did they say about the? Didn't say about ejecting, but I. But one video was that you can only eject twice. Yep, you can because it compresses your spinal your spine. cord. And also because you can only eject twice because if you have ejected twice, then there's a chance that there's a very, very two very, very expensive planes that are now in bits somewhere that have cost a lot of money. So you yeah. get two. I think it's more it. though, that your spine wouldn't be able to take it. So you actually shrink, you physically shrink when you eject because yeah. you basically experience about 20 G. So a roller coaster ride, two or three G when your cheeks go heavy, 20 G, mm. you're going to shrink by about a quarter of an inch, they say. Yeah. That's Surely the compression of your spine. So your basically your, your spine couldn't take it. Um, so that's why. And so based on that, Maverick actually couldn't fly again. But there we go. He can't do it, I'm afraid. No. <laughs> Twice he's ejected. Bad man. Bad man. But also the fact that that 
Blooming F-14 worked when it was just in some hangar and it's been sitting there. I mean, that would never work. I mean, we'd have all these aeroplanes which have been got all the ground crew working on them 24-7 and they still don't work. You're like, that would not happen. But I just didn't care because within the first 10 seconds of that film, I started smiling and I did not stop. It was just an it's adventure. Brilliant. It's doing a big open air cinema tour this summer, I think, and I've booked in twice. Oh, have you? <laughs> yeah. Different friends. But it's funny because when you're like, you know, we deployed our flares, I'm like, yeah, I'm familiar. <laughs> yeah, I'm familiar with flares. I know all about the pyrotechnics and countermeasures that are required to defeat a surface to air missile that's been fired at <laughs> In no way at all. Please don't put me in that situation. Uh, <laughs> not, with your just... mo- not with your mountain biking fear. You, that's no. it. I don't even. I haven't even ridden a bike, but I would like to. Um, I would like to go around a race course very, very fast. Oh no, I would. In fact, someone for my fiftieth birthday party, they said, "Mandy, go karting. You and me taking you on." I was like, "Oh, that is a mistake on your behalf. I am so competitive on go karts." <laughs> okay, I might email you after this and set up a day where we go basically around a because I would love to do it with someone and oh, be better to do it with than you. Brilliant. Oh, let's do that. Definitely. Definitely. Um, that could be fun. I've had an absolute ball talking to you. It's so, so wonderful to speak to someone with such incredible experience and perspective and just the way that you talk about everything makes so much sense. I've been hanging on every single word. I've loved talking to you. Oh, it's been a great chat, Emma. Honestly, absolutely loved it as well. For the benefit of my most excellent listeners, would you mind sharing where they can find you? And also, just to reassure you, I will be putting the links in the show notes and obviously to the book, but where can people find you online? It's a very good question. <laughs> so, I'm glad you're going to put the links there. No, it's um, I think on Instagram, I'm Mandy Hickson Speaker. On Twitter, Mandy Hickson. Facebook, Mandy Hickson Speaker. And I have a website. I'm going to shock you. Mandy Hickson. Yes. <laughs> it's nice when you've got a name, isn't it? You could just make that your brand as well. So uh, I'm on LinkedIn as well. So, you know, anyone feel free to get in touch. And my book is on Amazon um, as well. So uh, an office, not a gentleman, which you can just click as well. Or you can get a signed copy directly from my website. Woo. I can't wait to share this with everybody. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Emma. Thank you so much for listening to that episode of The Emma Gunn Show. I do hope you enjoyed it. I appreciate your time hugely. If you did enjoy it and you never want to miss an episode, then please do hit the subscribe button wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. It's also where you get the opportunity to leave a five-star review and a rating for how you feel about the show. And I'd be so grateful if you wouldn't mind leaving one. If you want to get in touch with me, email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Or you can DM me on Instagram and Twitter where I am at Emma Guns. If you fancy chatting to me and thousands of other fellow listeners of the podcast, then click the link to join the Facebook forum. The link to join is in the show notes, which can be found wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. You have to answer a couple of questions, but we cannot wait to see you there. Come over and join the conversation. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you on the next one.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.